0: Well, first, thanks for finding us in our new location. I think these are improved digs. Uh, we've been we've been promoted, upgraded to first class, um, I guess, or at least more room. Well, uh, and they've also room D has more uh, material in it, so we wouldn't have fit anyway. So, um, and the crowd is very large. So, thanks for coming out. I appreciate that. This year's series, I'm going to do forgotten thinkers, um, and the idea here is that. What we remember says a lot about a culture, but also what we forget or what we ignore or what we de-emphasize also speaks a lot to our culture. And so I wanna use reflecting on philosophers and thinkers who used to be considered incredibly significant, but have for whatever reason sort of fallen on hard times or no longer taken seriously or studied systematically um, and, and what that says both about why they were important, when they were important, but also what it says about us today um, that, that thinkers who may be still influencing us without us realizing it um, are, are still present uh, in our culture and why we ignore them. So the first one I want to start with is Cicero because he's just so easy and it's just, you won't believe how influential Cicero was and how uninfluential he is today. Uh, for those of you who've studied Latin, you may know that his name is pronounced something like "kikaroo." I'm not going to say Kickeroo because I, I can't bring myself. Since the Middle Ages, his name has been pronounced Cicero. That uh, translation took place sometime in the 1500s or 1600s. So let's just go with the medieval French pronunciation of Cicero because "kikaroo" just sounds weird. I don't know. I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. Uh, so Cicero it is. Now, the amazing thing about Cicero, what we know about Roman history around the time of Caesar and the Civil War largely comes from Cicero, because Cicero left us 20 to 30 works, complete and partial, 800 letters that he wrote still exist, 100 letters written to him or more still exist, so we have a uniquely large collection of material from Cicero, and he lived at this amazing time in Roman history, and then hence, of course, the influence of the Greek and Roman civilization on us, immense. And so it sort of translated over time. I kept cutting down his, the important dates in his life because there's just so many of them, and it's still long. But, there, but some of the important ones here, he's born 106 uh, B.C., this is the time of, of civil war and social wars within the newly growing Roman you know, continuum. It's not quite an empire yet, but it's, it's well on its way. Um, he studied in Athens. Uh, rhetoric, Greek, philosophy influenced him, as we'll talk about. Then in 75, so at the time he's um, about 31 or so, he served as a questor. This is the lowest level. And one thing that's important to note about Cicero is what's called a new man. He was not born from an aristocratic family. He wasn't born in Rome. He was born about 60 or 70 miles outside of Rome. His family had money, but they were not aristocrats. And so he came from outside the Roman political system, and he reached the very pinnacle of power in that system. But he was a new man, and we'll talk about why that's important, what they called a new man. Um, Then he was, and he was an adile, and then he was a praetor. And these are the levels. This is sort of, uh, you know, state representative, state senator. Um, Then, you know, he moves up to be house member, and then he moves up to be senator. Uh, And then finally, he becomes a consul. And consul is, is the peak. It's like president. It's not exactly equivalent to our president, but is the peak of the Roman political system. And he achieved that in 63, and he put down a conspiracy... Um, basically to overthrow the, the Roman system. And so he has a significant, if he had done nothing else, he would have been a significant member, uh, person in Roman history just because of his political achievements. And one of his great things was to put down the Catiline conspiracy. Well, then comes the first triumvirate. If you know anything about Roman history, Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar should ring some bells to you. Um, he spends the rest of his life fighting to maintain the Roman Republic against the attempts to impose a dictatorship or an imperial system. Now, he's, he's a conservative political thinker, which we'll get to, but he's fighting the forces of totalitarianism, or at least of centralization. And so he's exiled um, at one point because he was resisting this. He's recalled from exile um, because of a sort of treaty between Pompeii and Crassus. He becomes proconsul in Sicilia, kind of like governor. He's sent out to be a governor. He turned out to be very good at this. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't steal and rob and, and enrich himself, and so this made him pretty much better than all the other Roman governors. Uh, uh, then Caesar defeated Pompey. Uh, Cicero returns to Italy, and Caesar pardons him. So he was an on again, off again ally of, of Caesar, but he would never submit to Caesar, and so he w- he he couldn't be a true friend, but. They negotiated a lot. Uh, Caesar tried to bring him in and say, support me, support me. And he kept saying, no, I I can't completely do that because I think you're here to become an emperor, which seems to be true. Um, After Caesar is assassinated, something Cicero had nothing to do with, he got the Senate together to oppose Antony and try and reimpose Republican rule. But it's, it's far too late in the day for that. Um, finally, the Civil War breaks out again, Cicero, all kinds of things happen, Cicero is eventually uh, executed for his resistance to the imposition of imperial rule. And then in 27, Caesar Augustus, Octavius Caesar, um, takes full control and becomes, that's sort of the official date of the beginning of imperial Rome. So what's important about this, I mean, lots of things, A, from this period of history, which you're probably very familiar much of the first-hand information we have comes from Cicero himself. So he, the letters he wrote, the 800 that we have, are things in their workings of Roman politics at the time. Because he, you know, he was a consul, the, the highest level. Um, he was resisting all of the conspiracies. He was doing, you know, allying with this people and then switching over them. I mean, he's a political guy. And so we have this amazing insight for the period of his letter writing into the inner workings and before that and after that we don't have nearly as as much material and so it's a little less clear so again if he had just been a historian forget that he was a consul and was an actor in all of this if he had just been a historian who left us this documents he would have been important Um, but he wasn't just a historian and he wasn't just a main actor in this incredibly important period of roman history when they went from being a republic to uh, basically an imperial dictatorship. Simultaneously, unbelievably, uh, he was also translating and bringing from the Greek tradition philosophical concepts, ideas, and complete works and translating them into Latin, making them fit for the Romans. So as he was out of office or when he was being um, exiled, he spent his time writing Huge numbers of philosophical and political works, and rhetorical works, and grammatical works, and poetry, all aimed, and not all of it, but much of it aimed at trying to bring Greek philosophy, which was not Roman at all in many ways, into the Roman world. And he wanted to do this in part because he thought that the Greek system would help be a defense against imperial rule, against imperial dictatorship. This turned out not to work. Um, so he lived this amazing life, and he did, he wrote, he was a philosopher, he was a thinker, he was an active politician. Um, what was his influence? Now this is, this is crucial. Then, and then the Middle Ages, and then modern times we'll talk about it. In his own life, he was a best-selling author. His work on politics, education, religion, moral, ethics, friendship, were widely read. That's why we have so many of of his works have survived because they were so widely distributed. And this is a time, remember, when to distribute a work meant it probably had to be copied by hand. And to copy it by hand meant it had to be really popular for somebody to say, oh, I'm going to copy this, I'm going to keep a copy, and I'm going to send a copy to my friend. So again, I always tell people, imagine how many books you would have if you only had those books that you had copied by hand, word for word. So when someone's books are widely held, widely, widely copied like that, widely, you know, printed, um, it meant they were significant. People took them seriously. And a couple of them, we don't have time to go everything he advocated, so I just want to pick three that I think are, are central to understanding his influence then, in the Middle Ages, and the Renaissance, and then today. One is he was an opponent of superstition which he thought the the Greek religious and, in fact, the Roman religious system, he thought was just this big collection of superstitions. He had no use for it. He argued that the universe is ruled by a sort of rational divine providence. Now, whether that was precisely a god or not is definitely sketchy in his works. But he thought there was a rational plan and there was divine providence. And the way you then figured out what the divine providence was was with reason. You reasoned your way to the truth because the universe was itself reasonable. It wasn't a bunch of crazy random gods who fall in love and rape mortals and send minotaurs to kill people and throw tidal waves. No, that's, not, that's nature. He said, that's a bunch of superstition. The universe... It has a rational plan a providence and that you know this through reason so this is this is a major break by the way with roman tradition they were incredibly superstitious i mean uh, unbelievably superstitious now as a politician he was happy to use superstition to promote whatever he was doing he was always buying off augurs and priests to say oh you know we would love to pass that law but you know the birds don't say it's a good day for that. So he killed all kinds of bills and legislation, or promoted it uh, by by getting very favorable or unfavorable auguries, and they were very timely, suspiciously timely for his interests. Uh, so he he wasn't against manipulating them, but genuinely he ar- genuinely argued against this. He thought it was uh, enslaved the mind of man to believe in all this superstitious nonsense, and instead understand the universe had a knowable. Essentially benign, rational providence that oversaw everything. So that's one important element of him. Two, as as I mentioned, he was an enemy of dictatorship. Now, if you read his debate, uh, uh, his... uh, Dialogues, they're quite entertaining, by the way, because they're true dialogues. They're people arguing fairly. And you can read along, and sometimes you agree with the people who oppose Cicero's ideas more than you agree with the the people promoting them. And it's a true debate, which we'll we'll talk about when we get to education. Um, He said, sort of simplifying, basically, there's three kinds of government, particularly at that time. He says you can have a king, or you can have an aristocracy, or you can have a democracy. And by democracy, they meant, you know, like a Greek-style, an Athenian-style democracy, which was one man, one vote. Well, one slave-owning, wealthy male, one vote, right? I mean, so it's, it's somewhat limited franchise, as we would say, but still, for the times, radical democracy. Uh, and, and here's the problem. If you have a king, a bad king becomes a tyrant. If you have an aristocracy, a bad aristocracy becomes an oligarchy. And if you have democracy, bad democracy becomes mob rule. And one of his characters, I can't remember all the names, it's Lamont. It's probably Lamont. Uh, Lamont, Maurice, and Ed are having a debate. Think of it that way. Uh, But but one of them says, look, no matter what you say for democracy or for aristocracy, the worst thing is mob rule. Because when the mob breaks out, they burn everything down without... Any judgment. Even the worst tyrant will at least protect his stuff. That's the argument for a king, by the way. Uh, and and there's, you know, there's some wisdom to this, because history shows that mob rule, you know, the, the French Revolution demonstrated pretty strongly that mob rule, mm, bad, you know. And so Cicero pulls from this a, a unique view. And because he's a conservative guy, he says, a mixed constitution is best. You don't want just a democracy, or just an aristocracy, or just a king, you want all of them, which is the kind of constitution Rome had. And he understood that there were problems with this, and he wanted reforms, but basically what he said is a Republican model that has democratic elements, where the masses have some representation, not too much, an aristocratic element, where the wealthiest, the best people, uh, had most of the power, but had checks and balances. And then in the, in the Roman system, it was, there's the consuls, of which, remember, Cicero himself was one, uh, which was this rotating sort of supreme person, although with very limited powers. This may sound familiar to you. We're about to get to that. Um, and so he argued vociferously that what you do is you avoid the worst of all three systems by using the best of all three systems as checks and balances. And so it's a strange, imperfect, Cicero said, this is not a perfect system, but it avoids the ills of all of the other systems that seem so reasonable and good. So much of his writing is about how you set up a a better republic, and not a democracy, because you don't want mob rule, not an aristocracy, because you don't want oligarchy, and not a kinship, because you don't want tyranny, but some of each to avoid the worst. Finally, uh, again, he did lots more, but we'll just focus on education. Now, in education, uh, Cicero completely revolutionized the Roman mind. Just, you just can hardly exaggerate the level which he influenced them. And then, as the years go by, uh, later people. When Cicero was born, Greek learning still has a tinge of sort of uh, Persian effeminacy. We're Greeks. I mean, we're Greeks. No, we're Romans. We're tough, we don't need all that Greek education. That's not, it makes you soft, it makes you love luxury. One of my favorite quotes from the time period is that Uh somebody said, it's unbelievable how soft young people are today. They eat anytime they're hungry. (laughs) Right, That's, that's the Roman idea of softness. You don't eat when you're hungry. Any animal will eat when it's hungry. You eat when it's appropriate, and you don't eat very much. Because if you eat until you're sated, you're just an animal. So this, is, this, is, this was the Roman ideal. Um, you part of it. I mean, lots more of it, but it was, it was not a Greek ideal. And so uh, Cicero spent much of his life translating Greek philosophy, he didn't like the metaphysics, but he liked the concrete stuff, into Latin, and creating what we call a humanist education. In fact, he sort of coins the use of the term humanitas in Latin to mean this sort of learning. So today when we talk about the humanities, we're talking about a concept that was basically Ciceronian. It was a style of education that he developed and thought, oh, I'll revolutionize thinking in the Roman world. And he did bizarrely effective so much so that the byzantine empire when the western roman empire fell was greek speaking he convinced people that the greek system was so good that they stopped learning latin and started learning greek entirely until hundreds of years later the remnant of the roman empire was greek speaking not latin speaking this is incredibly influential so he was not successful in repelling the empire. That was probably hopeless. But he did convert the elites of the imperial system to his sort of education. a Sort of a strange win-loss kind of thing. So you have this imperial bureaucracy where people were learning Greek, studying Greek philosophy, and emphasizing things like poetry and ethics and morals. Um, so here's some quotes from him. I just, there's, uh, that'll give you a sense. Just a few quotes are on the back page there. The wise are instructed by reason, average minds by experience, the stupid by necessity, and the brute by instinct. That's his, this is, this just sort of sums up pretty much what he thinks. That if the universe has a rational providence, then reason will guide you to truth. He believed this emphatically. And if you don't use reason, essentially you're, you're an animal. It is not by muscle, speed, or physical dexterity that great things are achieved, but by reflection, force of character, and judgment. This is a direct direct challenge to the previous Roman tradition, and also something of the Greek tradition, of manliness, of physicality. Real men chuck spears into the faces of their enemies. That's how you accomplish things. We still have some of this, right? We struggle with this. We live in a society that essentially has no use for brute force, and yet we still kind of long for it, and and all of our movies portray tough guys shooting people. Right? We love that force. Ooh, Cicero was one of the first people to say, no, force doesn't get you anything. What makes achievement, what makes greatness, is reflection, character, and judgment. This is a a Ciceronian idea. He was working against the currents of his time as he promotes this. The enemy is within the gates. It is with our own luxury, our own folly, our own criminality that we have to contend. Um, Donald Trump, making America (laughs) great again. I know that sounds funny. Making America great again. This, This is a very American idea. Cicero is there. He says... Failure comes not from the challenges without, they come from the failure of reason and judgment and self-control within, both personally and politically. Don't worry about the enemies out there, they're not to be feared. We can handle those. It is our own failure, he is always inward looking, both personally and socially, politically. Politically. If if, if you're strong, if you're firmly rooted, and your culture and your political society is firmly rooted, no one can undo you. You rise and fall by your own merits, not by those outside of you. Very strong tradition that he launches on that. Um, I I put this one in just because I love it. Uh, If you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. (laughs) By the way, he didn't live by this at all because he had a garden and a library and he pretended to do all the politics and everything else. But I do love the idea. Uh, Two more, just to give you a sense of this. Six mistakes mankind keeps making century after century. These should sound familiar. One, believing that personal gain is made by crushing others. Right? That the only way to advance is to climb over other people. So uh, over the last couple of years, China's having a few rough months here. So all of a sudden we feel better. But the notion that the rise of China is a threat to us. Why? Can't China rise and we rise? Isn't it good for everybody to rise? No. If you think that you can only rise when others fall, then anybody else gaining any power or stature, individuals or groups, is a threat. That is mistake number one. We still make this, of course. Worrying about things that cannot be changed or corrected. Ha! Huh. How good at that are we? (laughs) You know, this this knowing that we just love to do that. He just thought this would siphon off all your power and and your attention to the things that you could change. Insisting that a thing is impossible because we cannot accomplish it. I love that one. Just because I can't do it or just because our society can't do it doesn't mean it can't be done. He always thought that was a, a, a big mistake. Refusing to set aside trivial preferences. That's a sort of obvious one. Neglecting development and refinement of the mind. The continual notion that our problems are exterior. His his whole system of education emphasized that no, the first thing you develop is the self. And then finally, attempting to compel others to believe and live as we do. (laughs) Ha ha! Ha ha! Well, I wasn't going to comment on that one. <laughs> so, uh, and, and finally, his notion of justice here. For there is but one essential justice which cements society and one law which establishes this justice. This law is right reason, which is true, the rule of all commandments and prohibitions. Whoever neglects this law, whatever written or is un, is necessarily unjust and wicked. If there is a divine providence, and the universe is rational, then you use your reason to figure out what is true. And that's what your laws are based on. If you violate that, you're just wicked and unjust by definition. It's not what you want, or what you hope, or what you would like. It's what reason dictates. Again, he returns to this. So central to his idea of education, and and this is going to be great, crucial going forward as we move, Now I'm going to move out of the Roman period now, um, is, I'm trying to summarize it as, uh, this is more or less a direct quote from him, that the first goal of education is to train you, to train the student, for self-care. You must learn how to care for yourself. Because if you are strong and healthy, and focused and knowing of yourself and your own capacities, then everything else can follow. If you're not, then nothing can follow. And so the focus was continually on self development. Develop your reason so you can think clearly, develop your will so you can control the things that would overthrow your reason. Bring what's inside of you. If there's a good providence, then you are good, and what's inside of you is good bring it out to fruition. That will make the best possible person. And in a system where we elect people to offices, then we have good people to elect. Time and again he says, look, if you have rotten people and you elect them to office, it doesn't matter what system you're in. Conversely, he says, he admits, if you could guarantee that only the best people would be kings, then a kingship would be fine. This wouldn't be a problem, but we know that's not what happens. So education needs not to focus on learning uh, careers or facts or any set of skills. Education needs to center on developing the person to be as strong and grounded as possible. And this this comes to flower in the Renaissance. So the influence of these ideas. I'm going to fast forward a bit to 1534. Um, this is from the Sc- uh, Scola Aquatonica, which was a text um, written in 1534 in medieval Latin, which is fun to try to read, by the way, um, and on the college de go in, which was a college in France, uh, school, it wasn't a college, it was sort of a school for young uh, men, of course, from ages about 10 to about 16 or 17, roughly, I mean, it wasn't as formal as ours are today. Here's what the course of study looked like. Now, this is important because this document was written in 1534 because they wanted to model the University of Paris. They are doing education reforms. I love that. Education reform, 1534, what do they do? Curriculum reform. Huh. Some things never change. Uh, So so they sent this guy out to see what they were doing at the college to go in, which is where Montaigne studied, by the way, um, and and find out what they were doing so they could do that at the the University of Paris. And the influence of the University of Paris was so huge that that kind of spread everywhere. But this will give you an idea of of how influential Cicero was at the time. I mean, already this influential. So this is 1534. You start in the 10th grade and you work to the first, by the way, so they, they did it the other way around because you want to be number one, right? So you go from 10 to one. Uh, so the first two grades are sort of your basic elementary. Remember, these, these students have already had some education, but so your basics of Latin and Greek and whatnot. So the eighth grade, what do you focus your education on? Uh, selections of, from letters of Cicero and Terence. Then the seventh grade, you do uh, explications of letters of Cicero. In the sixth grade, you do explications of, in French of the letters of Cicero and some scenes from Terence. In the fifth, you do explications of the letters of Cicero and some more scenes from Terence. In the fourth, you do letters to Atticus from Cicero uh, and Ovid. Ooh, look, Ovid, a new author. In the third, you do Cicero's letters and orations and Ovid. In the third, you do Cicero's letters, orations, and Ovid. In the second, you do Cicero's rhetoric, orations, Ovid, and Virgil. And in the first form, you do Cicero's rhetoric, orations, maxims, philosophy, Some Horace and Virgil. That's your education. Every year is Cicero, 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 some more Cicero, then some Cicero, and for your last two grades, lots of Cicero. (laughs) Terence, Virgil, Ovid, and Horace are each thrown in a little bit. Everything else, Cicero. And they did this for two reasons. One, they thought Cicero was the best stylist in, in Latin. And since to be educated meant to learn Latin, why not teach young people with the best writings? By the way, this is a great idea. (laughs) We give young people textbooks that are written horribly, horrible writing, no content. Lots of pictures, no content. And we say, here, read this. How are they supposed to learn to read from something that's so horribly written? And they say, okay, now learn to write. How are you supposed to learn from write from something that's so horribly written? No, what they said is, who's our favorite thinker from the classical world? Cicero. Well, give them Cicero. Give them some more Cicero. Give them a lot more Cicero. Think of your own education. Imagine if you were in about the fifth grade-ish, about when this fourth, fifth grade. They said, well, here's some writings of Jefferson. Here's the Federalist Papers. Here's some Franklin. Here's some from... You know, uh, Lincoln, some of our great stylists, our great leaders. And you learn to read and write and think about politics from that. Instead of a textbook that said, there were so many founding colonies, 13. On the test you will be asked how many colonies there were, 13. Be prepared to say the number 13 when prompted. <laughs> on the t- right? They didn't, see, they didn't do that. And since Cicero's texts, many of them, even the letters, are sort of dialogues, or many of them are literally dialogues, you got multiple sides. So when they say explicate, you could say, you know, I like this other guy's. I like Lamont's argument in favor of the king better than Ed's argument in favor of democracy. You were free to do that. It allowed your mind to expand, to think, to explore, to reflect, while you learned from the greatest Latin, who they considered to be the greatest stylet- stylist in the Latin language. Clear thinking, moral training, excellent example of political uh, ideals, all combined with grammar and rhetoric of the first order. This is not that confusing. I don't know. But Cicero laid out this plan, what, 1,500 years before, 1,500 years later. What's the text? Cicero, Cicero said he couldn't have been happier. This is what he had hoped for. The the Renaissance humanist movement was so dominated by Cicero that there was literally a movement by the Ciceronians uh, to um, say you could not use any word in Latin which did not occur in Cicero's writings. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious, This sort of Cicero as religion. I don't think he would have liked that. Uh, So this influence rolls out. And so from about 1200, 1300, A.D. to about 1900, 1850s. To be really educated meant to know Latin, and to know Latin meant to know Cicero. Even to if anybody, how many people ever use Wheelock's Latin? Anybody study Latin with Wheelock's Latin? There's Cicero quotes right from like the first lesson. It's quotes from Cicero. Is that not true? Yeah. So if you learned Latin with Cicero today, two thousand years later. What do you get? You get quotes from Cicero. This is how you learn Latin, because he was such a great writer and a great stylist. So as long as Latin boomed, Cicero boomed. When Latin started to die, ooh, you can see where we're going. But a few more important notes. If you've ever heard of the term deist, many of our founding fathers, by the way, were deists, is the notion that a divine providence that is rational rules the universe, and then we don't have to worry about that anymore. This is Cicero. This is Cicero in spades. And think about our political system. I mean, I I gave you a quote from the Declaration of Independence there. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the uh, consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Essentially, Cicero could have written that with the possible exception of the word happiness. He was not an Epicurean. In fact, he was opposed to the Epicurean, so he thought happiness was sort of a low goal. He would have said something like property and uh, uh, excellence, that that, that a government is supposed to help its citizens become excellent, not happy. But basically, he could have written this. It's called the, the, the theory of natural law, that there are natural rights inherent in the universe. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What do you mean self-evident? What they meant was, reason shows that this is what men deserve. It's not, men don't make this rule, it just is. This concept comes directly from Cicero. By the way, Adams, Jefferson, Washington, particularly Adams, specifically says Cicero. And look at the system of government we have. Total wreck, right? What a confusing mess. House of Representatives, directly elected from the people proportionally, the mob, the Senate. The Senate used to be appointed, by the way. This is what the Founding Fathers wanted. This is your aristocracy. If you read the Federalist Papers, there was a strong argument that you needed to own a lot of money before you should be allowed in the Senate because, of course, then you have the most invested in the country thriving. This is your oligarchy or your aristocracy. And then a president, the executive officer. This is your king. And to mix and match those powers and give them limitations with each group checking the other group, this is just Cicero. It's Cicero, well, at that point, 1,700 years later. This is exactly the type of government he argued for ruled by law this is where the supreme court comes in in cicero's day it wasn't the supreme court but they had this weird institution of priests that that functioned somewhat like it but he talked continuously about the importance of the rule of law because the law comes not from men but from reason which is the divine providence But look at how much we hate or struggle with or what people complain about in our system of government. Some people say, oh, we want a strong central president because then everything would be good, right? It's the old argument in favor of a king. But what's the problem with that? If he gets too much power, ah, he becomes a tyrant. This is is just the obvious uh, failing. Too many checks and balances. The Senate keeps things from happening. The Senate was designed to keep things from happening. <laughs> no, it sounds silly, but this is, it was literally designed that way. It was meant to say, look, if every two years you elect the House of Representatives, those people could do anything. That's the mob. They'll, they'll vote in anything. And if you look at the history of things the House has passed, it's horrifying that the House has passed some crazy legislation. I mean, and not just contemporaneously. Look through the history of the House of Representatives. They've dreamed up, you just, you can't hardly believe it. And the Senate has gone, no, (laughs) I don't think, we're, we're gonna put that to a committee. And we'll let that committee think about it for about three centuries, and then we'll get back to you on whether we think that's a good idea or not. And if it's passed both the House and the Senate, then our president can veto it and start the whole process over again. Extraordinarily problematic system. Now, like I said, Cicero was a conservative. He believed in property rights, very strongly invested in property rights. One of the problems the Roman Empire had, and one of the reasons it struggled and stopped being a republic, was because they couldn't figure out how to divvy property up. So they decided to give it to five wealthy people. This may sound familiar to you. Um, So the the oligarchs basically dominated, uh, and the empire came in and and divvied up different spoils. But they struggled with this fundamental notion of property rights, because a few people had almost all of it. And and since property was wealth then, it was essentially a total cornering of wealth. But Cicero, as is in our Constitution, a strong defender of property rights, because he said that's where a man has his freedom. As, as all Romans of the time who were wealthy, he was a slave owner. Saw so no problem with this. It's, it's remarkable someone who talks so much about human freedom had absolutely no problem with slave owning. It's, it's, weird. it's one of those just sort of total blind spots of the ancient world. But didn't bother him at all. So he was a conservative. What he thought was radical change is usually bad. In fact, almost invariably bad. So you want checks and balances to slow everything down. People always want a revolution. The history of revolutions is almost invariably pain and suffering for everybody. They rarely work out well. But, he said, if people are pressed, they have the right to kill their king. This was radical stuff in his time. And replace him. And notice this. Right there in the Declaration of Independence. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. This is directly from Cicero. He got into all kinds of trouble for this in his own life, for arguing this. No, you can't tell people they can rise up against the government. Don't do that. He said, no, you have to. You have to have that final right. If things get so unbearable, you can overthrow a tyrant. You can overthrow an oligarchy. You can put down the mob. You have to have that capacity. Because look at history. We know it's imperfect. So, despite the fact that Cicero was hugely influential on our founding fathers, I mean, he basically wrote our Constitution. One way to think of our Constitution is written by Cicero. Uh, uh, You know, he is such an influence on our founding fathers. Um, And and like I said, when you listen to political debate, particularly when people are upset with our government, a lot of it is exactly what was articulated by Cicero as the problems then. But they were on purpose. This is one thing that studying him teaches you. So why does he fail? Why does he slip away from us? As I mentioned, one reason was Latin. When we stop learning Latin to be educated then the great Latin author, Cicero, starts to slip through our fingers. He's no longer central to the curriculum. Because you don't, you know, you're not learning Latin, so why do you need this guy who wrote such great Latin? Also, our education underwent a fundamental shift. It's important to recognize this. Education shifted from being the improvement of the individual, in theory, right? whether it worked or not, but that was the goal, make better people. Because if you have a good person, you can teach them science or the law or medicine or politics, and they'll do a good job. If you have a bad person, it doesn't matter what you teach them, they're going to produce crap. That was, that's the theory. And it's not a terrible theory, by the way. I mean, people heard about this guy who bought the, the drug. He, he, he's an investor, led an investment group. He bought a drug, uh, the rights to a drug that used to sell for like $15. Um, And then when he bought the rights, they raised the cost of the drug to $750 overnight for no reason except for he could make money. Cicero would say that person is morally bankrupt and you should go slap his teachers. Literally. No, this is exactly what you should do, according to Cicero. That person was raised poorly. But that's not what our system says. Our education system shifted from a desire to produce excellent individuals to a desire to train people with specific skills. For the humanist tradition, for the liberal arts, liberal arts being the arts for freedom, the arts worthy of a free person, that is the education of a slave. You're training yourself to slavery because you're saying, I have this skill, now I must sell it. It's not that it's bad to have skills, in fact, Cicero was in favor of all kinds of different trainings, but the core of your education should always be, according to Cicero, as was the case for the humanist movement for, you know, 700 years, excellence of the individual, moral, intellectual, most importantly, the capacity to reason. And sometimes when we look back in history, you go, wow, look at these people in the 17th and 18th century. They were chemists and they wrote plays and they traveled and they you know, built a house and then they designed a steam engine. And you're like, holy cow, how did they do all that? Well, they, they never narrowed themselves into a specialty. Another difference about this is Cicero in, emphasized, and that influence was there for a long time, that if you are a citizen, not a slave, then you owe public service. You must serve. This is where he differed with the Epicureans. If you don't serve, then what are you? You're just a luxury-loving Sybarite. No use for you. You're dead weight on society. You prove your worth through public service. It's not through self-enrichment that you become great. It's through the enrichment of your society. It's, it's, it, for, for someone who had the incredible strong belief in private property, it has a sort of vaguely communist overtones. Uh, it, it's like, look, you, you only, he felt that man only thrives in communities, in societies, and those societies can only thrive when they're well-led and when as many people as possible participate. And so to him, the notion of enriching yourself... And not participating in public life was anathema. He wrote against this continuously. One of his friends, Atticus, did exactly that. <laughs> and Cicero was always like, well, "You know, why don't you come back to Rome?" He's like, "Well, because when I come to Rome, people try to kill me." Cicero's like, "Well, don't worry about that. That's the price you pay to contribute to your society." And he's like, "I think I'll stay in Athens and enjoy myself." Uh, you know that and that. But notice how far we've come from there. But if you look back to, again, the era even of our founding fathers in this country, this is precisely what they said. It is the duty of those who have the opportunity to serve. It's an honor, even if it costs you a lot. And we always think of, oh, rich people take power and then they aggrandize all the wealth to themselves. Now, the history of that is very, you know, robust. But there's also examples like Washington and Jefferson who, in fact, spent huge parts of their fortune, often endangering all of it, to serve, to help, to contribute. And there's at least as common, this is tradition Cicero wants to promote and believed in. But once your education system, in fact, your whole philosophy of existence, shifts away from that, you're not learning Latin, and you really don't believe in this improvement of the individual stuff anymore. And we certainly don't believe in sacrificing for public service. And so why would you read Cicero? And then back to the textbooks, I say it sort of flippantly, but it's true. Look at a textbook. A textbook tells you the right answer. There's even an answer key in the back. If you read dialogues of the ancient philosophers, Cicero not the least among them, often, even when you know the point they want to make, they give the other people really good arguments. And as I mentioned, I, I always feel this way with the Platonic dialogues. The last person I believe agree with is Socrates. I tend, I tend to like everybody else's points, but Socrates, you know, but, but they're great because you go, "Oh, this is a good point. This is a good. That guy made a good, oh, now, we're back to another good point over here." And they don't agree with each other. So this is a totally It's not about right answers. It's about developing your capacity to reason by engaging with people who are reasoning and making sound arguments even when those arguments don't coincide. So our love of the right answer, of the truth, capital T, completely disables us from from being able to understand or engage with someone like Cicero, who is always small t truth and then lots of other parts as well. And so as our education system shifts away from Latin, away from that kind of education, Cicero just takes a dip. Also, philosophy took a strong turn. You can sort of look at the Germans, the (coughs) Kant-Hegelian line, towards wanting big, systematic, clear, absolutist systems. That you learn the system and it solves every possible problem. Cicero's philosophy is very pragmatic. He writes a lot on things like what makes a good friend? How can you be a good friend? Friends are great because you get double the joy, and when you have grief, you can share it with someone else. Cut your grief in half, you get double the joy. You're happy when they succeed, you're happy when you succeed, double the joy. If one of you has grief, you split it in half, half the grief. He was emphatic about this. Friends make life good, but we moved away from writing about things like friendship in the the 19th century particularly. Or look at his system of government, basically the one that we have. It's a mess. It's not an ideal system. It's not rational. It's not beautiful or elegant or simple. But but Cicero's mind didn't work that way. Cicero said, look, we have these very concrete, real problems. How do we address them? It's not going to be a perfect, beautiful solution. There's going to be some mix of threats and potentials, and this is a less good, and he was the first one to say, look, my system is a compromise, but it's a compromise that avoids the worst possibilities. It doesn't achieve the best. He was was like, look, this is not the best possible. If you had a perfectly noble individual as king every generation, that would probably be the best, but we don't, so we can't do that. So what we're stuck with is some loose amalgamum of compromises that might lead to a sort of viable government. See, we moved away from, We want the right government. We want the truth. We want the best system. And Cicero's like, eh, here's the best we can do under the circumstances. The whole tenor of our f- philosophical mind moved away from that. That kind of pragmatism, that kind of political engagement with the realities to a much more abstract metaphysical plane, which again, he wasn't really a big believer in metaphysics. He wanted to solve concrete problems with reason. Um, and that, that's what he emphasized. And so th- I think the final reason that Cicero moves out of our curriculum, out of our thought, out of our studies, by the way, I looked at um, University of Washington, Stanford, Yale, Indiana University, my where I am an alumnus, uh, Some other college, and I can't remember, but big colleges with big philosophy departments. No one was teaching a class on Cicero. I couldn't find, I looked at their syllabuses, I looked at the bookstore, what books were available. Cicero, no, no Cicero. They they didn't have it. And my my favorite example is the, um, what's the Jesuit College, University of Seattle, is the Jesuit College in Seattle? Yeah? Seattle Seattle University, thank you, Seattle University. They don't offer Latin anymore. the Jesuits, that kills me. When the Jesuits aren't teaching Latin, Cicero's in trouble, right? Because who the hell else would love to teach Latin? But no, the Jesuit college, by the way, they do have an entire program on Buddhism. Uh, So you can look this up on the, they don't teach Latin. I don't understand. But anyway, uh, so, so, you know, we've moved away completely from that tradition. But I think the final reason, you know, that Cicero falls on hard times is this whole notion of disengagement. We almost, as a society, don't believe in political engagement anymore. We we think it's a fool's errand. Probably because it's a fool's errand, right? That we're not—that doesn't mean we're wrong. Uh, but when you stop believing in it, then then that someone who's constantly hectoring you to do things sounds foolish. You think, wow, Cicero, maybe that was good two thousand years ago, but today things have changed. Whether they have or not, I mean, that's an interesting historical question. Um, if you wanted to, and this is something I'll do in all the lectures, is, is suggest things to read. Uh, if you wanted to look at, at Cicero's idea in his dialogues, he has, has a great book on laws and on the republic. Now These we only have are partial. We, we only have partial versions of these. Um, but together they give you a really good sense, both of his political ideas... Um, and of the use of dialogue as a form of exploring ideas. And you don't have to read more than a few pages to realize it's completely different than what you expect to read from philosophy. Because it, excuse me, yes, in, translated into English. Yes, I would not do that to you. Uh, translated into English. Uh, um, but but the, uh, the sort of friendliness of the discourse the, the joy that they are obviously having, in fact, one of them, I think it's the laws, opens, and it, it, oh, is it Sola? It's one of the leaders of the Roman Republic who's been having a rough go of it. And his friend says, oh, I'm so happy to see you in the country recovering from, you know, sort of assassinations and civil wars, essentially. And he says, yeah, I need to breathe some fresh air and free my mind to reason and engage in thought again. Because I'm so overwhelmed with the cares of office. And they say, so, then let's chat about the ideal structure of a Roman republic. And they excellent! How better to relax and while away the wee hours of the morning, you know? And off it goes. But apparently this seemed true to them. This seemed like a good idea. That was convincing back in the day. See, we're, we're not convinced by that. But those two are great. And then he has one, uh, it's a collected, I think it's a Penguin Classics have it called On the Good Life, but it's a collection of several uh, different works of his. Um, But I particularly enjoy his stuff on friendship. If you want to read something by him on, I think it's undervalued, uh, this concept and the importance of friends. Because really, you're stuck with your family, um, right? You you didn't choose them, uh, but you choose your friends, and, and think of what an impact the quality of your friends have on the quality of your life. And, by, and when you read through someone like Cicero, who makes the case so emphatically, he's not original with this, by the way, he just makes the case beautifully, about what a friend is for, how a friend should act, what does it mean to be benevolent, when do you give too much, you know, all the obligations, the duty, the responsibility, the joys of It it really is, you don't have to agree with him on everything. But it is enlightening, or I think at least enriching, in in our thought. Um, And so basically what I think has happened with Cicero, he was hugely influential in his day. In fact, even after his life, maybe even more influential than his own life, philosophically, although politically, again, he was hugely active. Then with the coming of the humanist movement and the Renaissance, he becomes this dominant figure because of Latin and because of his idea of what makes for a good life. What makes it to be a good human being, to be educated, to be literate, to be reasonable, to know art, to know poetry, to know philosophy, most importantly. And then it translates into actually the structure that we live in. And then we forget him, sort of forget him. The one thing we're going to come back to again and again in this, and I think Cicero is a great example, one reason I wanted to start with him, is... Philosophy is really a seed. The Greeks planted the seed of Greek philosophy, of course. Cicero picked it up, translated it into Latin soil, and grew something new. And that flowered. and the seed from that fell. And the people in the 12th, 13th century picked that up and planted it in the soil of Europe. And something new grew from that, the humanist movement. And the seeds from that were planted in the Enlightenment, and our founding fathers planted it. And something new grew from that in in, in the Americas, in, in our Constitution, in a lot of our outlooks about life. And this continuing process, philosophy doesn't live in books. Cicero would be the first one to say this, despite the fact that he wrote a bunch of books. It lives when we sort of cultivate the concepts in our own lives and in our own cultures and that you get this recurrence of ideas and concepts and philosophical systems that influence, and they seem to wither and die, but then all of a sudden they, they, they fluoresce again, and up they come, and, and, and here they are back again. So I'm not sure Cicero is dead forever, but with the death of Latin and, and, and the change of our educational emphasis, he's certainly been dead for about the last 80 years. Anyway, so thank you, Cicero, Forgotten Thinkers.